Easter is a fantastic time because it, it invites us to consider what it is that we really believe. And it forces us, I think, to ask the question, what kind of God do we really believe in? A number of years back in the UK, researchers went door to door asking questions of just average people, and they were, they were troubled by a particular question. The question that they were trying to answer was what they called the problem of this persistent belief in God. And it wasn't just the, the fact of the belief in God. What they were trying to determine was, why is it that people claim to have a belief in God, and yet when by any reports of their activities or uh, involvement, these people who claim to have a belief in God didn't see any connection with a, uh, a need or a desire to gather for worship, to learn about this God that they claim to believe in. And so uh, they went and they, they came up with all kinds of questions to try and find out why is this. And their, their findings were interesting. When they had finally um, analyzed and tabulated all of the responses that they got, they entitled their report, Ordinary God. And it was a quote, a phrase that one of the respondents used, and they said, this person more than any other represents the average British person today and their understanding of God and how they interact with him. One of the questions that they had asked during the interview was, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of events and performs miracles? Do you believe in, in that kind of God? And this one individual whom they titled the report after, he said, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in an ordinary God. And so they, they used that to try and put their, their uh, understanding of, uh, of what was happening in terms of British faith together. You see, an ordinary God is kind of polite. An ordinary God is nice. An ordinary God keeps his distance. He, if you don't bother him, he doesn't bother you. An ordinary God is, is consistent, predictable. He's consistent and steady. Doesn't get too involved. Doesn't get too near. And this ordinary God, by all reports, is extremely popular in Britain. And I suspect in Canada as well. He sounds very Canadian to me, this, this ordinary God. The problem is that Easter throws a wrench into this view of an ordinary God. Because at Easter, what we're doing is we're celebrating the fact that God became man, entered human history lived this incredible life that 2,000 years later people still talk about, performed miracles that could not, be, uh, could not be explained other than the very power of God at work in his life, and then that God died in our place on a cross and on the third day rose again. Nothing ordinary about this God. Nothing that could be explained as... Uh, nice, kind of keeps to himself, uh, steady, predictable, like none of that, none of that can, can be held consistent with the, uh, the historical event of Easter. And this is an area where, probably the only area, 
where the late and renowned uh, atheist uh, Christopher Hitchens and I are in agreement. Hitchens wrote a bestseller in 2000 entitled, uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Okay? So this is not a book that I would, we won't be, we won't be having it at the book table after the service. I, I'm not encouraging you to run out and buy this book. Um, but he was, um, he was on his book tour and he was debating a number of Christian leaders. And as he was going around, he, he was interviewed at one point by an, a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell. And she said, look, I'm a, I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, for instance, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. She asked, do you make any distinction between this kind of fundamentalist faith and more uh, liberal understandings? And his response is fascinating. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, that he rose again from the dead, and that by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Even atheists understand that the God of the Bible does not allow for any concept of an ordinary God. He is extraordinary or he is nothing at all. So I'd like to read with you the Easter account. We're just going to look at scripture this morning and say, who is this God and and, and what are we to, to, to make of him? Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel. And I'll be reading from Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 1 to 12. Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they had found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women who, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, there are a number of things that stand out about this Easter account, but the first is how Jesus' resurrection just amazed his disciples. It disrupted their ordinary God faith. It, it, it just it, it brought upon them a sense of marvel and wonder. Jesus' resurrection amazed his followers. Now, first to back up and just get a a sense of the scene here. So the body of Jesus was taken down from the cross just before the Sabbath. And they just had a short window of time to get his body prepared for burial. So his followers managed to retrieve the body. 
They bound it in linen. They applied some 70 pounds of spices and uh, they uh, managed to get it into the tomb before Sabbath, at which point no more work could be done. But all of that time, the clock was ticking. So they were in a rush. They had to get things done very quickly. Once, Once the Sabbath was over, though, they returned now early on Sunday morning and they were going to complete what they had started. So they brought their spices, more ointment, more preparation for this, for this burial. When they arrived, there were no Roman soldiers now, surprisingly. The massive circular stone that they would have had to move to get into the tomb had been rolled away. But as they went inside, they had the greatest surprise. Jesus' body itself wasn't there. No body. Verse 4 says they were perplexed about this. It's a strong word that, that kind of says like they were at a mental dead end. They just, they came to this point, didn't see the body, and it's like they were struggling to make sense of what do we do with this? This is the same word that gets used of their reaction at the Last Supper when Jesus lobs that bomb that one of them would betray him, and they're like, what? Like, I, how do we even deal with that? I can't, I can't, I can't fathom that. And, and that's what they're feeling here. Jesus' resurrection amazed his followers. Now, as they were standing here at this mental dead end, they were perplexed about the empty tomb. Now two angels appear before them. And in verse 4, it says, they stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, at that point, you're kind of picturing, I don't know, something like, Jay-Z or, or Bruno Mars or something, some, some kind of really hip outfit. But the word dazzling here is not like, wow, that was really cool outfit that they were wearing. The, the only other place in the New Testament where this word dazzling gets used is to describe lightning. It's like shining. It's like you're staring into the sun or something. It's like you're looking at a, at a burning fire. Their clothing shines so much you'd have to cover your eyes. And the women see this, and they drop to their knees and worship. In case we didn't already get this impression, verse 5 adds, they were frightened. You know, like, no kidding. They were, they were overwhelmed by this scene. So much for the ordinary God. Jesus' resurrection amazed his followers. Now, if you thought the women had a hard time coming to terms with the resurrection, like the men were, were way overboard. In verse 10, you've got Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some other women. They all went as a group and they told what they had seen, what they hadn't seen, what they had been told. And these were people that the disciples trusted. They knew these women. They trusted these women. They knew that they were reliable women. But verse 11 gives their verdict. Luke records... But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The apostles figured the women were a little crazy. Maybe they were just overcome by grief, like this stuff doesn't happen. Easter just didn't fit with their ordinary God theology, and so they couldn't accept it, and they just put it aside. Jesus' resurrection amazed his followers. And I mention all of that for you because some of you maybe are still in that place. 
Maybe you're still in the place of those early witnesses where they get there and they say, like, this just doesn't fit with how I understand God, so I'm going to try and put it into a different category. I'm going to look for other ways to explain this because I'm kind of committed to kind of an ordinary God kind of thing, and this idea of someone raising from the dead and, and miracles, and it just, that just doesn't fit with where I'm at. That was the case for, for the early followers. Their first impression was exactly the same as that. Jesus' resurrection initially amazed his followers, but they eventually came to believe. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't do anything other than face what was an historical reality. There was evidence before them. Some people today are still stuck in that amazement. Now, I usually don't quote the late... Uh, Texan preacher J. Vernon McGee, but I think he has one of the best Easter quotes ever. Um, and I, I really can't do him justice with my Canadian accent, so I'm not even going to try, okay? But just kind of imagine uh, uh, a, a little bit old, old school uh, Texan preacher giving this response, okay? One of his li- listeners had actually written into him, and she said, Our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross. And, you know, he just, he just kind of fainted, and his disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And I'm thinking, I mean, dear, I mean, if you've, if you've been listening to J. Vernon McGee for any length of time, you know what he thinks. I mean, but, and, but I, I could have told her what he thinks, but I'm, I'm glad he answered just, just the same, okay? So he, he said this, dear sister, Beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Then nail him to a cross. Then hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for three days. And then see what happens. Now, that was not a very Canadian response to her very um, uh, innocent question, right? But he puts across a very uh, clear message. There is no way that somebody who had gone through what he had gone through could just have swooned and been nursed back to health on that third day. It just isn't going to happen. And yet people will continue to try to hold on to this idea that there is an ordinary God and we can fit everything else that history and the evidence leaves us with can somehow fit into that. And it just won't, uh, won't be a part of that. So Jesus' resurrection amazed his followers. What I want you to see next, however, is that Jesus' resurrection shouldn't have amazed his followers. It shouldn't have caught them by surprise. It shouldn't have been so, so uh, unbelievable to them. Jesus' resurrection should not have amazed his followers. The angels tell them as much when the women come to the tomb. In verse 5, they say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing here in a cemetery? Jesus is alive. The, the, the angels are rebuking them. They say, What you're doing here is inconsistent with what you've been told. The angels are lost to understand why his followers 
didn't realize that Jesus was alive. That Jesus must be alive. Jesus' resurrection shouldn't have amazed them. The reason that the, the angels are surprised at these followers of Jesus is because he had told them. They expected, the angels expected, that the disciples would actually remember a few things that Jesus had told them, and particularly something as important as this. In verse 6 and 7, they say, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. As far as they were concerned, Jesus' message to his disciples was pretty clear. This is something that they should have believed. They should have understood. Shouldn't have amazed them. They were told that he'd, been hand, he'd be handed over to his enemies, and then crucified and resurrected. And then verse 8 just says, and they remembered his words. Like, husbands, we've all had this experience, right? We've come to that point where our wives have said to us, remember how I told you? And then slowly the lights come on and we're like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that now. That, that's what's happening here. The, the, the angels have to bring something up and they say, oh yeah, there was that thing. I think that's coming, it's coming together for me now. Jesus' resurrection shouldn't have amazed them. Some of you, are, some of you want to get the disciples off the hook here. Some of you are thinking, maybe, maybe Jesus just like blurted it out in passing at some point. Maybe he spoke quietly in a hushed voice. Maybe he just, it, it, they were eating and it was kind of busy and, and it, it was just in passing and, uh, you know, they, they, it wouldn't, wasn't that big or prominent a deal. Um, so that's why they didn't understand. They, maybe that's why they didn't, didn't remember at the time. But Jesus predicted his resurrection repeatedly, clearly. Shouldn't have amazed them. Matthew 16, 21, for example, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, Matthew here is making the point that Jesus is just beginning to spell things out for the disciples, but this would take place over a period of time. It was just the beginning. And do you know what happened when Jesus told them this, this news? You know what the response was? This is where Peter famously takes Jesus aside and says, and begins to rebuke him and says, you know, far be it from it for that anything like this should happen to you, Lord. He thinks he knows better. And it's instructive for us because often God's trying to get our attention. He's trying to say something to us. And we're listening, but we're thinking, I think I kind of got a better idea than you on this, God. I, I think I've kind of got this thing figured out. And so even though the words go in, they kind of bounce off again. We, like Peter, think, eh, I think I know better. Jesus' resurrection should never have amazed his followers. In Matthew 17, 22 and 23, he records, as they were going... As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, 
the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So more time has passed. He's getting a little closer to the event, and he's repeating his words. And he says, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Then it adds, and they were greatly distressed. When we hear something that distresses us, it sometimes affects our ability to take it in, doesn't it? If I were to tell you, if I were to give you three reasons this morning why the Toronto Maple Leafs aren't going to make it through the first round of the, the, the playoffs, many of you, by the time you go to bed tonight, you will have forgotten and put it out of your mind that I've even mentioned that because it's something that might distress you. It's something that you might not want to hear, might not want to receive, and so we put it into this other room in our mind, that, that room that we tend to lock and, and say, I'm not going to think about this one very much right now. And that was what was happening here. They were perplexed. Uh, they, were, they were here uh, uh, disturbed, distressed at what Jesus had said. And so they blocked it out. And that's exactly what can often happen in our own lives. God tries to speak to us, and we find what he is saying distressing, and we block it out. We don't take it in. We don't listen. Jesus' resurrection should never have amazed his followers. Finally, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem. He's getting very close, and he knows that these events are going to unfold, and he wants to warn them. He doesn't want them to be taken by surprise. And he says to them, See, we're going to, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. You'd think they would take notice of that, right? It's the third time. You'd think, boy, it sounds like this is going to happen pretty soon. I, 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 should, I should be ready for this. But you know what happened after this account? You know what the very next thing that gets recorded for us? This is where the mother of James and John comes up and says, I was kind of hoping for a promotion for my sons. Could, could they sit on the left and right of you when you come in your kingdom? I think that would be really cool. Like, they've been with you, and they, I think they're the most faithful of the disciples. I think that they should kind of get a special place. And you think, like, if you're Jesus, you're thinking, I was kind of hoping for a little more consolation at this point. I just told you I'm going to be beaten and tortured and killed. And you're talking about, like, your ambitious plans for your sons? What, what on earth is going on here? And yet we say, wow, that's crazy. How could anyone be so, so selfish and self-absorbed? And yet we look at our own hearts when God tries to get our attention. And so many times we're so focused on something we want, something that we've got in our minds, whether it's an ambition or a need or a problem, we get tunnel vision on that and we don't listen to anything else. Jesus' resurrection should never have amazed his followers. Couldn't have been more clear. Now, at this, at this point, I want to address the elephant in the room with you this morning because some of you are thinking, Paul, this is the most simplistic, basic sermon I've ever heard. 
Point one, Jesus' resurrection amazed his followers. Point two, Jesus' resurrection shouldn't have amazed his followers. What is the point of this? What are we talking about this morning? Well, here's the point. If Jesus' followers were that amazed at a resurrection that had been so repeatedly explained to them and warned to them, the question that we might ask this morning is, is there anything else that Jesus has repeatedly explained to us and warned us about that we might have also forgotten to listen to, be unaware of? And that is the question. That's the point. In fact, the scripture presents Jesus' resurrection as a dress rehearsal for our resurrection. And I want to pause right here and to make sure that everybody has heard that. Did everyone, even at the back, did you hear that? Jesus' resurrection was a dress rehearsal for our resurrection. I want to make sure that everybody in this room has heard those words in the same way that I, I wish when Jesus explained about his resurrection that we could have gone back in time, been there with the disciples and said, you really need to get... You should be taking out a pen and paper at this point in the sermon. Uh, I would have liked to have said that to him, but I want to clarify that with you. Jesus' resurrection was a dress rehearsal for our resurrection. All right. Why do I say that? John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 begins like this. Do not marvel at this. The NIV says, do not be amazed at this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is here is explicitly warning us not to be amazed at this. Do not let this take you for surprise. Uh, don't, when it comes, don't think, Oh, where did that come from? I wasn't expecting that. Do not let that happen. Don't be amazed at this. He's announcing a time when we will rise from our graves in very much the same way that Jesus rose from his grave. Jesus rose from the tomb and he returned to the Father, but it says there's a time that's coming when we will be in the tomb, we will actually hear the voice of Jesus Christ. We will rise and it says that like the Easter resurrection, it will be a, a time where there will, be, there will be surprise. There will be amazement. Even though Jesus has clearly warned us, clearly given us advance notice. We'll actually hear the voice of Jesus Christ and rise from the dead. Now we'd be amazed at something like that if Jesus hadn't have done two things. First, he tells us in advance that it's going to happen, and then he warns us not to be amazed about it. And so I, I present that to you this morning with, with the heart's desire that nobody would be amazed when it does happen. Jesus' resurrection took almost everybody by surprise. They were all amazed at it. And that's okay because it was a dress rehearsal. And what happens at a dress rehearsal when people make mistakes the director comes and he corrects them. And that's what we see with the angels. The angels show up. Boy, you guys really blew it. 
He, he'd kind of warned you about this. We'd kind of gone over this many times, but you got it wrong. That's okay. That was the dress rehearsal, lesson learned, but the final performance is coming. Our resurrection will be that final, re- final performance. And Jesus said, we'll either face a resurrection of life or we'll face a resurrection of judgment. The consequences are so much higher that we really need to be ready this time. There are no future dress rehearsals. We've had that, and every year we repeat it just in case there's somebody who didn't hear, somebody who wasn't listening, somebody who was otherwise preoccupied. But Jesus warned us not to be amazed at one more thing. He warned us not to be amazed at our need for a new birth. In in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 7, very early on, Jesus said, Do not marvel, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. See, when we trade our lukewarm faith in an ordinary God, and we say, I think this ordinary God thing is really just my excuse to be my own God. I think I'm just kind of playing religion when I do that. I'm going to trade that thing in because I don't think that helps anybody. And I'm going to put my faith in an extraordinary God. I'm going to put my faith in a God who raises the dead, a God who intervenes in history, a God who cares enough that when he sees people caught in sin, trapped in sin, he doesn't write them off, he doesn't give up, and he doesn't say, well, we'll just, we'll just ignore that. He intervenes, and the Son of God goes to the cross in that person's place, dies in their place, takes the punishment that they deserve, And then so that there's no mistaking, that nobody could say, well, how do we really know? He's raised from the dead. And he becomes for us a testimony and a record, not only of what God has done, but what God will finally do. Easter is an incredible celebration of Jesus' victory over death. But it's also a dress rehearsal for our own resurrection. Jesus warned his disciples about his death and resurrection so they wouldn't be amazed. He did not hope for them to be amazed. He wanted them to instead to be prepared. And Jesus has given us warnings, encouragements, explanations, urgings about our resurrection so that we wouldn't be amazed, so that we wouldn't be caught off guard because it's his desire through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone, turning from the ordinary God and putting our faith in an extraordinary Savior, that we would be a part of the resurrection of life and be spared from the resurrection of judgment. What the dress rehearsal showed, though, was the disciples were still amazed, showed that they hadn't really listened to Jesus. They hadn't listened because they thought they knew better, right? They hadn't listened because they'd focused on other things. They had their ambitious plans. And they didn't listen because they didn't want to hear. So our message this morning is not to follow in their steps, to learn from their mistakes, to learn from the dress rehearsal that we might be ready, each of us, for that final performance. 
And when it comes, we will rejoice in the Savior who not only died in our place, rose from the grave to show us what was coming, but will rejoice in him as we see him in all of his glory. See him as he is and rejoice in his presence. Don't be amazed when our resurrection comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great hope of Easter. We thank you for the hope of life after death. We thank you for the hope we have because you accepted Jesus' sacrifice for sins. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who just hasn't really heard this message somehow until now. Help them to listen. Help them to hear. Help them to receive. And Father, if there's anyone reaching out to you in faith, I pray that you draw them to yourself. Draw them from the ordinary God and help them to put their faith in an extraordinary Savior. As we reflect on Easter, we're reminded that there's nothing ordinary about you. We praise you that you're an extraordinary God. And we pray in the name of our extraordinary Savior. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.